chapter two of sons of fire by mary elizabeth braddon this librivox recording is in the public domain alan carew's people alan carew spent the best part of the following day at beechhurst better pleased with his inheritance than he would confess even to himself the admiral's chinese experiences had not been without tangible result the hall was decorated with curios whose value their present possessor could only guess and if the greater part of the house was prim and commonplace there was one room which was both handsome and original this was the admiral's smoking-room and library a spacious apartment which looked as if it had been added to the original structure and which was built on the model of a mandarin's reception-room yes on the whole alan was inclined to think his lot had fallen on a pleasant heritage he went up to town in good spirits spent ten days in looking at hunting studs at tattersall's and made his modest selection with care and prudence content to start his stable with a stud of four good hunters a dog-cart horse a pony to fetch and carry two grooms and a stable help the all-important business of the stable concluded he went back to suffolk to spend easter in the bosom of his family and to tell his father what he had done there was perfect harmony of feeling and frankest confidence between father and son and the son's regard for the father was all the stronger because under that quiet and somewhat languid bearing of the squire of fendyke alan suspected hidden depths of the history of his father's youth or the history of his father's heart the son knew nothing yet fondly as he loved his mother the excellent and popular lady emily he had a shrewd suspicion that she was not the kind of woman to have won his father's heart in the days when love means romance rather than reason that she possessed her husband's warm affection now he the son was fully assured but he was equally assured that the alliance had been passionless a union of two honourable minds rather than of two loving hearts there was that in his father's manner of life which to alan's mind told of a youth overshadowed by some unhappy experience and a word dropped now and then in the father's talk of his son's prospects and hopes a hint a sigh had suggested an unfortunate love affair his mother was more communicative and had told her son frankly that she was not his father's first love you remember your grandmother alan she said yes alan remembered her distinctly an elderly woman dressed in some rich silken fabric always black with a silver chatelaine at her side on which there hung a curious old enamelled watch that he loved to look at a tall slender figure a thin aquiline countenance with silvery hair arrayed in feathery curls under a hunaton cap she had been always kind to him but no kindness could dispel the awe which she inspired i used to dream of her he said had she a frightening voice do you think she was mixed up in most of my childish nightmares poor alan laughed his mother she was an excellent woman but she loved to command and one can't command affection not even the affection of a child it was she who made your father marry me he liked me and i liked him and we had been playfellows but we should never have thought of marrying 
if your grandmother had not in a manner insisted upon it she told george that i was deeply in love with him and she told me that george was devoted to me and so we could not help ourselves and after all she went on with a comfortable sigh it has answered very well i don't think we could possibly be fonder of our home or of each other than we are and your father has his books and his shooting and fishing and i have my farm and my schools and with a sudden gush of tenderness we both have you you ought to be fond of us alan you are the link that makes us one in heart and mind alan was fond of them both parents had been undeviating in their indulgence and he had given them love without stint but it may be that he loved the somewhat silent and reserved father with a profounder affection than he gave to the open-hearted and loquacious mother that vague consciousness of a secret in his father's life of sorrows unforgotten but never told had evoked the son's warmest sympathy all that alan had ever felt of sentiment or romantic feeling hitherto he had felt for his father it is not to be supposed that he had reached five-and-twenty without some commerce with cupid but his loves had been only passing fancies sunbeams glancing on the surface of life's current not those deep forces which change the course of the river the characters of father and mother were distinctly marked in their acceptance of alan's good fortune lady emily saw only the sunny side of the inheritance she was delighted that her son should have ample means and perfect independence in the morning of life she was full of matrimonial schemes on his behalf decidedly he ought to marry well and quickly an only son with an estate in possession and another his patrimonial estate in prospective it was his duty to found a family she marshalled all the young women she knew in a mental review there must be good family a pure race untarnished by the taint of commerce unshadowed by hushed-up disgrace divorces bankruptcies turf scandals there should be money because even the two estates would not make alan a rich man as the world reckons wealth nowadays but they would give him a respectable platform from which to demand the hand of an heiress he could woo the wealthiest without fear of being considered a fortune hunter it is sad to think you will like your own place better than this said lady emily in her cheerfullest voice and that we shall hardly see you except at christmas and easter but it is so nice to know that you are in a position to marry as early as you like without being under any obligation to your father for indeed dear what with his library and my farm there would have been very little margin for a proper establishment for you my dearest mother why harp upon matrimony i have made up my mind to follow your brother's excellent example poor ted sighed lady emily he was in love with the belle of the season a poor foolish thing with one long curl streaming over her left shoulder and a frock that you would laugh at if you could see her to-day of course ted's chances were hopeless a younger son with a commander's pay eked out by a pittance from his father she used to ride in the row with a plume in her hat half a spanish fowl quite the right thing i assure you at that time ted was twelve years older than i you know alan and i was still in short petticoats when he went off to china broken-hearted of course she wouldn't have him though she said he was the best waltzer in london 
her people wouldn't let her look at him even from a matrimonial point of view allen went to church with his mother on easter morning attended two services in the fine old church which seemed much too grand and too big for the tiny town her loving heart swelling with pride at having such an admirable son her friends had always been fond of him but now it seemed to her there was a touch of deference in their kindness they had liked him as her son and the inheritor of fendyke hall but perhaps they liked him even a little better now that he was his own master a man of independent means he accompanied lady emily in her weekly visit to the schools he assisted in dealing out easter gifts to the school children and distributed half a dozen pounds of the very strongest obtainable tobacco among his male acquaintance in the village of fendyke a village consisting of a rectory three picturesque farmhouses a still more picturesque water-mill and miller's house a roomy old barn-like inn said to have once given shelter to good queen bess and of between twenty and thirty cottages grouped in threes and fours along the broad level road or scattered in side lanes the morning of easter monday was given to an inspection of lady emily's white farm that farm which next to her son was the greatest pride and delight of her innocent and strictly rural life here all buildings and all creatures were of an almost dazzling purity white horses at the plough a white fox terrier running beside it white birds in the poultry-yard white cows in the meadow cows from lord cotter's old white pembroke breed cows from blickling park and woodbastwick white cottages for bailiff and farm labourers white palings white pigs and white donkeys a white peacock sunning himself on the top of the clipped yew hedge in the bailiff's garden white tulips white hyacinths in the flower-beds to procure all this whiteness had cost trouble and money but there are few home farms which give as much delight to their possessors as this white farm gave to lady emily carew she had as much pride in its perfection as the connoisseur who collects only wedgwood or only florentine majolica has in his collection it is not so much the actual value of the thing as the fact that the thing is unique and has cost the possessor years of patience and labour lady emily would take a long journey to look at a white cow or to secure brahma or cochin china fowls of unsullied whiteness it was a harmless simple womanly hobby and although lady emily's farm was a somewhat costly toy it served to give her status in the neighbourhood and it provided labour for a good many people who were well housed and well looked after and whose children astonished the school inspectors by the thoroughness of their education no incompetent master or mistress could have held on in the schools where lady emily was a power she cultivated a friendly familiarity with the man and woman who taught her cottage children she asked them to quiet confidential luncheons three or four times in a quarter she sounded their opinions plucked out the heart of their mystery lent them books stuffed them with her own ideas and in a manner made them her mouthpiece intensely conservative as to her opinions and prejudices and with an absolute loathing for all radical and revolutionary principles she was yet by the beneficence of her nature more liberal than many a professing demagogue and would fain have admitted all her fellow-creatures to an equal share in the good things of this life her warm heart was full of compassion for the hard lives she saw around her hard even where the condition of the agricultural labourer was at its best 
and it was her delight to introduce into these hard lives occasional glimpses of a happier world a world of pleasure and gaiety laughter and frolic lady emily's christmas and whitsun balls for the villagers and servants lady emily's may-day feast for the children lady emily's midsummer picnic and harvest home and lady emily's fairy fir-tree which reached to the ceiling of the boys schoolroom every branch laden with benefits these were events which broke the slow monotony of each laborious year joys to dream of and to remember in many a dull week of toil second only to these festive gatherings in helpfulness were lady emily's coal and blanket society savings bank and mother's meeting the last a friendly familiar gathering held in a spacious old building which had been a brewery in the days when every country gentleman's household brewed its own beer once a week through the winter season lady emily sat in the old brewery with a circle of cottagers wives sewing industriously while she talked and read to them tea and bread and butter a roaring wood-fire and a bright lamp were the only material comforts provided but these and lady emily's friendly welcome and pleasant talk with the short story chosen out of a magazine and the familiar chapter of the new testament read far better than vicar or curate read it in church sufficed to make the mother's meeting a cheerful break in the cottage matron's busy week she went back to her homely hearth cheered and encouraged lady emily had told her the latest news of the great busy world outside fendyke had given her a recipe for a new savoury pie of ox cheek and tuppenny rice or a new way of making barley broth or had given her a cutting for a tiny flower gardener had cut out her new garibaldi lady emily had been to her as a friend and counsellor the village remembered with a shudder that long dreary winter when the great house was empty while mr carew and his wife were in egypt ordered there by the doctors after a serious illness of the squires much had been done for the sick and the poor even in that desolate winter for the housekeeper had been given a free hand but no one could replace lady emily and the gaiety of fendyke had been extinguished End of chapter two